Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. Well, first of all, I just want to say a huge, heartfelt thank you to everyone who donated to the Max Fund Drive this year. Between all the podcasts asking for new members, Max Fund was able to get 1,300 new members. We are so grateful to all the Risk fans who participated, and that support will help keep us running. And I want to say a few words about a new sponsor of ours. You know, meetings are absolutely essential to the way that we work, where we solve our problems and develop creative solutions. But if your team is all over the place, like the team of Risk and the Story Studio, coming together can be pretty complicated, unless you use GoToMeeting with HD Faces. This is a fast and simple way to meet and collaborate online. With GoToMeeting, It's easy to stay connected from wherever you are, whenever you need, to just click on a link, you can turn on your webcam, you can instantly connect to your team, sharing the same screen to collaborate on documents, you can see each other face-to-face in HD with video conferencing. It's so easy to launch or join a meeting from anywhere using your computer, your phone, or tablet, and now you can present from your iPad. We're using it now. At Risk and the Story Studio, and I'm telling you, the future is here. This thing is so much more beautiful and easy to use than anything I've seen before. So, try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. For this special offer, visit GoToMeeting.com, click Try It Free, the button there that says Try It Free, and use the promo code RISK. Remember, use the promo code RISK. Now here's the show.
kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Bad, Bad, Not Good. Behind me now, that's all one word. Now, we're calling today's episode What I'm Made Of. These are two remarkable stories from two remarkable men who found themselves at a juncture in their lives where they suddenly perceived things a little bit differently in terms of where they'd come from, what they'd been through, and how that had affected what they'd become. We're going to start with the remarkable artist, Shen Wei, whose photographs you really must check out at shenphoto.com. His photographs have been included in the Museum of Modern Art here in New York, the Library of Congress, many museums throughout the world. He's been in The New Yorker. Shen wanted to work on how he communicates about his art, so he came and took a workshop with us at the Story Studio, and he told this story in class, and I thought, oh my gosh, I have to have him sit down and record this one with me. So without further ado, here is Shen Wei with a story we call But Now I See. When I was 23 years old, I found myself standing in front of a painting by Vincent van Gogh. The painting was the olive trees with yellow sky and the golden sun. The painting was so fascinating to me because I had seen this painting many times when I was a child in the newspaper, but I just couldn't imagine one day I was standing in front of the painting, looking so closely, almost recognize the brushstroke from the artist. Then I walked from room to room. I saw Monet's green stacks. I saw Roman statues, Egyptian mummies, even the art collection from China, my native country, was astonished me. You see, I had never stood so close to creations I found so magnetic. I had never seen these sort of masterpieces that spoke directly to my heart right in front of my face. Because I was raised in Shanghai in a slum, I had never stepped foot in an art museum before, and I couldn't get over how much I felt like I'd arrived at home. My childhood in the slum was full of trouble. I lived with my parents, my grandparents, three aunts, two uncles, a few cousins, some cats, rats, and cockroaches, all under one roof. 
I didn't have my own room, so I spent a lot of time just outside, playing with other children, chasing around the maze that was the street of the slum. In the summertime, I would sleep outside in the communal courtyard for the entire season to escape the heat of the house. Our cooling system was fans made of bamboo leaves and uh, just one electrical fan that everybody was fighting over. My parents married during the Cultural Revolution in China. That lasted from late 60s through late 70s. People who were wealthy and suspected to being capitalist were being harassed or put in labor camps or even worse. My mother's father was an entrepreneur. He owned an engineering firm and the family lived very uh, lushly in this mansion in French concession. But my grandfather's success made him a target when the Cultural Revolution began. He was stripped nearly everything he had owned. So my mother did what so many other wealthy young women in China did at the time. She decided to marry into a poor family for a more stable future. She met my father, the son of a construction worker. She married him and left her childhood in the mansion behind. And then she moved to the slum with my father. They fell in love, but their life was very hard. They both worked long hours in the factories and the countless difference in their family background got them fighting all the time. Because of my mother's upbringing, she was very westernized. I have never seen her dressed in chipa, which is this traditional Chinese-style uh, dress. She drank a lot of coffee rather than tea, taught me how to use a um, fork and a knife. She once brought a whole family to a park for a picnic trip, but no one around us actually understand the concept of picnic. She was also interested in fashion design. She always dressed very nicely, and she made clothes for everyone in the family. I often looked too dapper for the slum. I had this chocolate-colored striped suit. Um, very, very chic. She would sometimes put hair oil on me just to make me look extra nice. My hair is always so shiny under the sun. When I strolled with her through the slum, everyone commented on us. Some admiring us, but most were just very jealous. My mother became like a fashion icon in the slum. All the women came to her and asked her to design clothes for them. She developed a talent for making very classy-looking dress from very cheap fabric. Years after the Cultural Revolution ended, she left her factory job, went to a fashion school, and became a full-time clothing designer. 
Even before she was retired, she designed clothes for publishing houses and TV productions. Meanwhile, my father never left his factory. He's been fixing machines his whole life. When I was young, he would work long days and came home very tired and sometimes frustrated with everyone at home. Perhaps life was too overwhelming for him at the time. The constant stress and the work and exhaustion. Sometimes he was even abusive because of it. I was very scared of him when I was a kid. He would always hit me when I went home with a very bad school report. We had a good time too, but I started to forget all about those. My memories of my childhood always went back to getting beat up by my father. After a while, I just stopped talking to my father. I began to feel that we were so different. It was almost as if we weren't related. One day, when I was eight years old, my mother discovered my textbooks were covered with pencil drawings. She said, "This is my art gene. It has been passed to Weiwei, which is、um, my nickname from my mother." She was so proud to think that I may be an artist, and she began to send me to these weekend art schools. As it turned out. I actually really loved art classes. I grew to love drawing and design. Eventually, I was accepted to an art college in Shanghai, and、I、began to understand for sure that I was an artist. I'm grateful that my parents made that possible for me. But studying art in China in the late 90s was difficult. Because it wasn't the best environment for self-expressions, resources were very limited. You don't get to see a lot of、uh, art books from overseas, and the、uh, internet was not that common at the time, and、uh, the Chinese society was still quite restrictive. My art school was more practical than actually artistic. One time. Our assignment was to design a perfume bottle, but none of the students had ever used or owned a perfume. I went home and I painted a big-breasted woman on this beer bottle for my assignment. My parents were very shocked and confused, but they were just happy I was not getting trouble on the street. My mother continued to be excited about my art studies. She began to speak me like a peer, since she felt like we cut from the same cloth, as they say. But my father never seemed to know what to say to me about art. It seemed like art was just an alien thing to him, not a part of his world of machine and work. For a while, I was working in this design firm. One morning. I was ready to leave for work. My father questioned me, "Why I don't bring any tool to work?" I looked over to my father, and impatiently responded, 
I use my brain. I can see his eyes dimmed down to a slice of embarrassment and anger. Sometimes he will listen to Shanghai Opera, which is kind of a music that comes from this folk tradition in Shanghai, seen in the Shanghai dialect. Not like the world-class Beijing Opera, which is considered high art, and、uh, it is admired by music lovers from all over the world. I remember being a teenager watching my father hum along to this Shanghai Opera, and hoping. He could have a better taste for finer things in life. The more I grew to love art, and the more I felt it was in my genes, like my mother said, the more my father and I seemed to be from a different world. I knew I should go see and study real art. Where the artists can express themselves whenever they want. So in the summer of 2000, I landed in the United States. I was accepted by the Minneapolis College of Art and Design, a great school where I continued to discover who I am and what I want. I saw and did so many things for the first time, including making the kind of art I love. After three years in Minneapolis, I moved to New York City, and went to graduate school, trying to survive and making art. When I moved to the U.S., I drifted apart from my father even more. I would talk to my mother on the phone all the time, but if my father answered the phone, the conversation would be painfully awkward. We were just two people. With nothing in common anymore. A couple years ago, my parents came to New York to visit me. It was my father's first trip out of China. I brought them to Washington D.C. and we went to the National Gallery of Art. My mother was tired, so she went sit in the coffee shop the whole time, and、uh, left me with my father. We walked room to room silently. We don't even talk to each other. It's completely wordless. We walked through this long hall of sculptures. I intentionally speed up so I can just get over this awkwardness as fast as I can. Then I saw my father sat down at this one bench, staring very intensely in front of him. I thought. He must be lost in thought about something. So I just stood still, holding my position by the door, and、uh, hoping to exit the gallery as soon as possible. But I just watching him, just sitting there, not even moving. I feel like he must sit in there for a long, long time. Finally, I walked over to him, trying to signal him that we ought to move on. Before I said anything, he turned his head to me, leaned his body forward a little bit, pointed his finger to a bronze statue right in front of him, and said, "That is the most beautiful thing 
I ever seen in my life. At that moment, I realized that my father was in a museum for the first time in his life. And just as I had such a profound experience the first time I stepped foot in a museum in Minneapolis, so was he. He was staring at Rodin's The Thinker, a nude man in sober meditation battling with a powerful internal struggle. And the sculpture might as well have been alive for him. It might as well have been a sculpture of him. At the moment, I almost burst into tears. There was so much about my father that I had never seen before and could only see now that we were in this new environment, away from the place he had a relentlessly difficult life in the past six decades. Later, I heard my father sing discreetly by himself in the hotel bathroom. I even came to realize how beautifully simple and true those old Shanghai folk opera songs had always been, though I'd failed to see it before. And I was telling myself, my father and I are not really so different. And that's my art gene. Risk, and it's a gorgeous song there called Dog Physics by Plaid Dragon. Remember, you can always find the lists of the storytellers and the musicians and the links to their websites at the listen pages at risk-show.com. Now, before we get to our next story, I just wanted to say a few words from one of our sponsors. Uh, you know, small businesses such as Risk and the Story Studio, we know from experience that Going to the post office is a waste of time. Uh, leasing an expensive postage meter is just completely out of the question. There's a better way, and it's Stamps.com. Stamps.com will save you valuable time. You get 24-7 access to all the services of the post office right from your desk. 
Whether you're sending envelopes or packages, first class or priority, domestic, international, whatever it is, get the postage you need using your own computer and printer. Suspend your time, you know, doing more important things than running to the post office. And right now you can use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now, our last story on the episode today comes to us from Ed Gavigan, who I'll tell you, I don't even know what to say about Ed, except that he is just a beautiful man. And I just consider it an honor to just listen Whether he's speaking on stage or just sharing stories, you know, at a bar afterwards, he is someone who's been through a hell of a lot and does a beautiful job of sharing it. So here he is at the last Risk Live show in New York City. This is Ed Gavigan with a story he calls Whatever Doesn't Kill Me. I will speak your language, So we wake up in the morning, we get dressed, we put our shoes on, we head out into the world, pretty sure we're going to come back at night, get undressed, take our shoes off, go to bed, and we plan on getting up the next day and doing the same thing. And we hope, we plan, that becomes this framework, kind of a... um, It helps us uh, in our life. And we make our plans based on the idea that we're going to be able to come home and continue to do what we've been doing. And John Lennon said, life is what happens to you while you're making other plans. And I woke up one morning. I wasn't wearing any of my own clothes. I had a tube up my nose going down into my stomach to drain it. I had a tube uh, coming out of each side to drain each lung had a morphine drip and a catheter and a um, life support machine beeping next to me. At the foot of my bed was a surgeon who had worked on me all night to save my life, and next to him were two homicide detectives. Now, for the record, when your day starts out with two homicide detectives telling you what happened to you last night, it's going to be downhill from there. It turns out that... There's a gang in Brooklyn that had, as part of an initiation, three guys came into the village, and to move up into the upper echelon of the gang, uh, these guys had to kill somebody that night. So they sat waiting on uh, Thompson Street for a guy to come around the corner. They had a lookout at either end of the block. Lookouts gave the go-ahead. It was uh, the night before Thanksgiving, so the streets were very deserted. And this guy is walking down the block. He gets his keys out of his pocket. These three guys are coming towards him, 
puts the keys into the lobby of his building, the lobby door. He goes in, the door closes behind him, he pushes the elevator button, and these guys are locked out. He gets in the elevator, goes up to his apartment, takes his clothes off, goes to bed, has no idea what just didn't hit him. I'm the next guy. So I'm walking down the block, I don't have, I don't live there. And these kids jump on me, and there's three, they have their knives, they're out, they're up their arm like that. I had no, did not see it coming, there were no words exchanged. They just pounced on me and began to stab me. Took one in the neck, uh, the other one went up uh, my side, cut my heart, <clears throat> both lungs were collapsed. Now, I grew up in Wyoming, learned how to fight. Then I went to school at uh, Notre Dame. I was on the boxing team, which is one of the very lucky things that saved my life that night is I got one very good straight right punch and knocked the middle guy out. And then I started to scream and ran down the block. And the police caught the middle guy because everyone else ran and left him. They couldn't carry him. And then they told him that he was going to get the electric chair if he didn't give everyone up. Uh, he gave up all the names. And so these two homicide detectives had uh, mug shots. And the surgeon had told them that I had about a 2% chance of living through the day. And they wanted me to identify these guys before I died. Now, nobody told me that I only had a 2% chance. And um, I didn't really understand why these guys were bugging me to identify these people. And I, I felt very bad and I didn't, I, too queasy. And I just said, I can't really put anything together from last night. And I don't want to make a wrong identification. So, um, you know, uh, you'll have to do something else with fingerprints or something because I, I don't feel good making this identification. And um, so I spent the next three or four days on life support and um, I, I beat the odds. And uh, I come off life support and I go into the intensive care unit and the little nurse comes in and she's got the clipboard and she said, I'd like to talk to you about your insurance. And I was self-employed at the time, so I like to say I was insurance free. And um, <laughs> she uh, was dismayed to learn that. And the next morning they came in and told me, um, man, you are looking really good. We think you should um, get better at home. And they pulled all the tubes out and they gave me a little jar of Percocet and a cane and I ended up uh, at home. Now, I had a few hundred stitches from surgery. I had uh, multiple stab wounds. I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't go to the bathroom. I couldn't lay on my back, I couldn't lay on my side, I couldn't lay on my stomach. And every time I started to doze off, the movie would start and I just was just engulfed in terror. So the days and the weeks went by without, uh, you know, my stitches came out, but I just was not getting very much better. And, you know, in New York, if you can't go to your job and uh, pay your rent, you don't get to stay in your apartment. So, <clears throat> I was getting calls from the district attorney's office to help him with this case. I have now five guys to go to jail for uh, attempted murder. And I would go down to visit him and it would be a very emotional time for me because I didn't like to walk outside. And yet, then there were moments like I'd be walking past the deli and I would see all the flowers and the buckets and it would, it would be like uh, out of a Disney movie where all the flowers would start to sing and I was, so happy to be alive and I was just like I would feel things and, and hear sounds and watch 
just details, everything. I was just picking it all up like I'd just gotten a fresh start at everything. And yet, the rest of my life was just shit. And I would just alternate between this, like, these intense moments where, like, the essence of existence was just erupting around me. And then I would just be crying because I would see two Puerto Rican kids and any kid that looked like he had a hint of menace, which they all do, every kid, every teenager is like projecting menace, and I would, I would lose it. And, and the feeling was like, you know, if you're driving late at night on a, on a road and it's uh, snowing and the road's icy and there's, it's late, you're going a little fast, you're coming into a turn and you feel all the wheels start to slip. And you look, you see the guardrail and you're like, there's nothing I can do brake steering I, I, I'm, I'm gonna hit and then you hit the dry pavement and the car shutters and you have control again and you keep going and then you feel it the taste in your mouth and behind your knees I would get that feeling eight and ten times a day when I left my apartment and I was just unraveling coming apart and I end up getting evicted I come home and the marshals have put um, all of my possessions on the sidewalk and the homeless guys are picking through and I, I got nothing. I have nowhere to go. And uh, I have a, a, an appointment with the district attorney. So I go to him and I just break down. I start to cry and I'm like, um, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm not going to have any phone anymore. Um, uh, and he says, well, let me give you the number for victim's assistance. A little late, I thought. Um, <laughs> And so I take the number and I go to the victim's assistance office, just walked there, and uh, there I'm waiting. I don't have an appointment or anything. I just figure I'll wait till somebody talks to me. And this very nice young girl comes out. Like, she looked just like uh, Reese Witherspoon in Legally Blonde. She's got the ponytail and the black turtleneck and the clipboard. And I'm in a very dark place. And I see her and I feel like we're not going to connect. And she takes me back to her cubicle, and then I know we're not going to connect, because on the wall next to her monitor is the poster, I know you know it, of the kitten and the branch. It says, hang in there, baby. <laughs> and so I just sit there, kind of looking at her, and she gives me a list of places that I can go for um, free group counseling in the Bronx, and she puts me on a list for subsidized housing, which will possibly in 18 months, uh, you know, give me something. And then I can fill out Medicaid, and she gives me this middle envelope full of all these forms, and I feel like I'm a drowning man who has just been thrown a kit to build a boat. And I walk out of there with all this paperwork, and I go to see this bartender that I knew, this very cute um, Lebanese-Canadian poet bartender. She's rocking this Simone de Beauvoir look, and she's just super smart and funny, and she listens. And I just uh, say I'm, I'm homeless, you know, and uh, so she lets me stay on her couch. And the, the thing about her that was just incredible was that she listened. And I found that when I tried to talk to people about this turmoil in my head and, and how my life was, I, was just unraveling, people generally had one of three responses. Um, the first response was, everything happens for a reason. And that made me want to stab them six times and see if they knew what the reason for that was. <laughs> and the next thing that people said was, you've just got to pull yourself together and put that behind you. You're, gonna, you're, you're fine now. Just move on. Like, you can't dwell on the past. 
And I just wanted to punch him in the face and just keep punching him and, and just say, so are, are you able to just, you know, move on? Like, I, I really could use some advice from somebody who knows what they're talking about, not somebody just dishing out these platitudes. And then the next thing that people said, and again, everyone, they meant well. They just had no fucking idea what to say. And instead of saying nothing and listening, they said, um, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And the problem with that for me was that I actually did not believe that. I mean, I went to college, you know, I sat up all night in the student union um, drinking coffee. Uh, I read Nietzsche. I just had this feeling that things could happen in your life that would break you, that you would not recover from, that, that not only would you not be stronger, that I was never going to have what I had. My, my health was shot, my business was gone, my, my apartment, like I had nothing. And, and not, not only would I never even be stronger, I just wouldn't even have ever again what I had. And so I'm, you know, this is making me sad and, and then kind of mad because it just seems like nothing is working out. And I would take my little bag of tools that I had. I, uh, before I got hurt, I had this small furniture shop in Dumbo. I had built uh, custom furniture. So I still had a bag of chisels. And I would go up to the Upper East Side with my screw gun and my, my chisels. And, you know, if you're, um, you have your own tools and English is your first language and you knock on the door of a construction site, pretty much uh, you can have a job for the day. And I knew what I was doing. And so pretty soon... They'd say, like, you know, put him down in the basement on the baseboard and see how he's going. And then, you know, I'm working on some millionaire's townhouse, uh, you know, with just incredible stuff going on, marble and, and rosewood everywhere. And I'm in this library and I'm, you know, morticing an offset pivot hinge into this uh, inlaid door. And the thought of, like, this beauty and this, like, craftsmanship and what these people are going to be able to live in and like the just the beauty of, of what we were creating in, on, on the job site contrasted with my life and then like the evil that had happened to me and I just started to cry. So there I'm, I'm on my hands and knees crying and you know one of the Mexican laborers is like goes to the foreman he's like that dude you hired man he's crying in the basement. <laughs> So the, you know, the foreman's this Irish guy and he comes down and he's like, you know, Eddie here, can't use you anymore today. Here's, go have a drink, man. And, you know, paid me through the day and I just go and I'm sitting on a bench near Central Park and I'm just feeling like, you know, my girlfriend's worried about me because I've gone from being the sad guy to being the mad guy and I'm like verging on being this bad guy because I just am so dark all the time. And I see this dude go walking by with his shiny briefcase and his shiny shoes and his perfect suit and his silk tie knotted and his hair's all shined and combed and perfect. And I just think, I'm going to tackle that fucker and kneel on his chest and just punch him in the face and make him hurt and just say to him, you think that you're where you are because you're good, but you're not. You're just, you're, you're where you are because you're lucky, man. A car could jump the curb. Some fuckers could stab you at night. Like, you are lucky. You're not good. You didn't get where you are because you're so fucking smart or talented. Just, you didn't get hit. 
That's why you're here. And I want you to remember that. And I just wanted to hit this guy so bad. And I'm thinking, better not do that. And I let him, I let him keep walking. And then, I, and then what hits me is, I just wanted to hurt a perfect stranger to make a point about what's wrong with my life. And in that moment, I realized I have just become closer to the guys who stabbed me than I am to who I was before I was hurt. And I see there's this path for me where I'll join those guys on the road to fucking hell. I'll be alone, I'll be in prison, I'll do whatever I want to do, and I'll end up like them. And I don't want to do that. I have enough wherewithal to not want to do that. And the next thing that occurs to me is that I can't ever have what I had before. It's gone. That guy, I can't, I can't get back to that. I'm different. I'm fundamentally and totally changed. And I need, to, I need to do something that I've never done before. And then I think, I've got this girl, and she's like, I'll, I'll just go tell her. Like, I'm going to be different now. I, I, I put all this other crap aside. I'm going to start again. I'm going to have this, like, energy. And I'm totally psyched. And I go running home to her, and I'm like, I'm going to be different. Things are going to be great. Will you marry me? And she's like, no. <laughs> and so she, um, sh sh but she's enthused by my enthusiasm. And she gives me, you know, she waits. And so we, we, we try and work it out. And a couple years goes by, and um, she knows I'm never going to ask her again. So she asks me. And I agree. And then a little more time goes by, and we, we kind of get a, a routine back. And I get a better job and start doing things again and, and kind of put the world back into some kind of perspective where I don't really trust the world again, but at least I have it at arm's length. And we decide we can have a kid. So I have a, a, a four-year-old daughter now. So... I put her shoes on in the morning, and I head out to work. When there's no one here in the trail Who will live through your first day trial Of confusion when your faint and crooked smile Had to leave And when you painted like a warrior Though you know it's a raining wall When the first you spoke but wasn't really sure Was your heart Your fear of the leading 
still you try But there's no leaving now That's all for this episode, folks. This is The Tallest Man on Earth, behind me now with a song called There's No Leaving Now. Don't forget, Risk is at the Free Library in Philadelphia on April 20th, 2013, with Elna Baker and Julia Rozzi, among others. On April 25th, we're in New York with A.J. Jacobs and Roger Hales and more, and On that same night, April 25th, we're in Los Angeles at the Nerdmelt Theater with Faye Lane, Lauren Koch, and more. Find out about all of our live shows at risk-show.com slash tour. If you want to learn about our workshops, the storytelling workshops that we teach for people who want to do this kind of stuff, like appearing on this show, or uh, storytelling for business, go to thestorystudio.org. If you click on the little button that says show me the videos there, you can get our 14-part video lecture series called Storytelling for Business. Gives you all the techniques you need to workshop any story for the rest of your life. Please follow us and participate. Communicate with us. Uh, On Twitter and Facebook, we're at Risk Show. On Twitter, I am at the Kevin Allison. We always welcome your ideas and especially... Your story pitches. Don't forget to go to the iTunes store to look for the three Risk All-Star episodes. Just look up Risk All-Star. And if you like our show, please tell your friends that they got to put Risk on their phones and get to listening. I guess that means the only thing left to say is, folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Your fear of the leading light If they are with you and your heart won't fail To see through a fearless sigh And know the danger finally goes away Still you try There's no leaving now